Hi, this is Sophia from the Gray Stage Podcast. I'd like for all of you to know that the Justice for David Crowley and Family group is located on Facebook. In this group, we highly encourage our members to read all the documents that we have gathered for this case. You can find those documents up in the group files or on Greg Fernandez Jr.'s website titled thegraystagewordpress.com. Together we can work to find justice for David, Kamel, and little Ronnie. Merry Christmas. Hey, what's up everybody? This is Ross from Planet X Filmworks channel on YouTube and the Zodiac Files True Crime series. Check it out and shout out to Greg and the Gray Stage channel. Their content is amazing. Today's chapter will be chapter 10, Closing the Case. And if you're following along with your book at home, it's page 85, a section called Tom Lydon. My name is Dan Hennon. I'm joined here today with Greg Fernandez Jr., Catherine, and Sophia. Welcome. Thanks, Dan. Hey. Hey, everyone. Well, it's a good it's a good chapter of the book where we're called Closing the Case, and it's kind of wrapping everything up. And this this podcast episode will be very good because it, it features Tom Lydon, a local boy, uh, television broadcaster, investigator, uh, one could call it here in the Minneapolis-St. Paul Twin Cities area. And so what we'll do is start reading here on page 85 and we get to find out uh, how this all works and how things closure and how convenient it all seems to be. Continuing on, one year after the alleged double murder slash suicide committed by David Crowley, Fox 9 investigator Tom Lydon interviewed Apple Valley Police Chief John Retzigel. I waited for Mr. Lydon to ask Chief Retzigel why it took his department one month to locate one month to locate the bullet they believed David killed himself with. Eventually, I realized that was never going to happen. Uh, should we end there, Greg, uh, for a discussion? Sure. Yeah, so obviously, you know, the case is closed. Everything is wrapping up. It's one year later. We're going to get some answers, right? Tom Lydon is going to come to our rescue. He's going to solve this case for us. He's going to let us know, as many people have been taunting us and saying, do you guys just look at the evidence? If you're just patient, if you just wait, you will see what proves David Crowley guilty. So here, here we are. Uh, watching Tom Lydon's news report here. It's about a, about 20 minutes if anybody wants to go and see that. Um, just look for Tom Lydon Fox, Fox 9 and you'll find it. We may play a little bit of that later here too. But um, so there were a lot of things that we were hoping for. Obviously, we, we want to know the answers. We, we want to know, okay, Chief, what did you guys find that was just a slam dunk, case closed, no problem, David Crowley guilty, public is not in any danger. And so one of the main things that I was waiting for um, Tom Lydon to ask him about was about some of the things, especially this bullet, this bullet that they don't find until one month later, one month after David Crowley's body is found. 
And when I, as I'm watching it and I'm watching it and I quickly realize, okay, you know what? He's never going to, he's never going to ask the police chief that question. And I was really disappointed. And I'm sure that a lot of people were. The main reason that I was disappointed was because at this point, one year later, a lot of people don't even know about this bullet. And we're talking about item 57, uh, the bullet that is quote unquote tied to David. Not through his blood. The bullet does not have his blood. This is the bullet found in the living room attic uh, right above the living room. And so um, this this was a big thing because this, you know, I really felt if people know about this bullet, they're going to start asking more questions. They're going to start asking um, the right questions. And I was hoping that Tom Lydon would ask that right question. If they got it wrong, if they missed it, okay, you guys missed it. But it just seems like they didn't even want to talk about it. And Tom Lydon, who, you know, looks, if you, if you watch Tom Lydon's news report he looks very serious like he really cares he's really in intense he's really gonna you know he looks he almost looks sincere almost but then his actions don't back up that that view um you know he doesn't ask the real tough questions that a broadcast journalist uh that a that a journalist should ask he does not ask those questions so i was really frustrated um, Dan, how how did how did you feel after you watched Tom Lydon's? Well, like you said, Greg, you know, for the months that had gone past, more and more people were following this case, but it was getting more and more quiet at the same time. There wasn't any traction. But our communication, I think, with the both of us, with emails back and forth from the Apple Valley Police Department, they said, we're almost done. We're ready to wrap up the report. We're ready to just release everything. We've come to the conclusion that this whole thing is going to be done. It's going to be sometime in January 2016 when we'll close this whole thing up. And so we were all excited that, you know, that we're finally going to get the police reports and the information and what all happened because before then we hadn't been getting much information. Um, there was, of course, a lot of activity on the Justice for David Crowley Facebook group page about what was going on and, and whatnot but what we kept getting responded with is you know we, we can't say anything until everything's released and then one week was was led to two weeks and two weeks you know was three weeks and finally it was january 2016 they said we've got this whole thing done and then this this tom Lydon fox 9 investigative report came out at the same time which i don't think we were really expecting that but after watching it you are right greg the questions that he asked were all softball questions, all very, very easy, easy to answer questions. None of this was hard, difficult, or challenging. And they didn't bring up any of the very questionable things that we were dealing with. And so this this kind of set everything in motion as far as going along with the official narrative. They were just trying to cement the official narrative and it, and, it, and it felt to me like a, you know, an Operation Mockingbird uh, you know, cover-up that they asked the answers that they knew they'd have the answers to and everything was softball questions. So I was um, the very let down, uh, to, to say the least. I'm sure continue How about you two ladies? Oh, sorry. Uh, I'd like to see how the, yeah, how did, how did you two ladies um, feel about it once you, once you watched it? Or have you watched it? Do you have the patience to watch 20 minutes of Tom Wyden <laughs> and his nonsense? Um, 
I don't know about um, Sophia, but I, I did watch that and, you know, the whole thing. I have a very short span to deal with uh, people who are just lying. And you could just tell either that a tongue had not done really any research whatsoever. And for, in regard to this first um, paragraph, kind of what sticks out to me is that it seems to have gone over both Tom Leiden's head and the AVPD that it took them a month and then they had to be told. So they're trying to skip over this very important part of this case and this, you know, oh, we'll mention it in passing, oh, by the way, and then quickly forget about it. And just, just to follow up, this, this is Dan again. Locally here, you know, Tom Lydon's been around for a while. The Fox 9 investigators have been around for a while. They've done some very good reporting in the past. They've done some very good investigative journalism in the past on a normal type of crimes or, or, or questionable activities. But this is the first time I've ever seen anything like this where it was just kind of blatant in your face uh, that they didn't really care. It only left me leaving thinking that they don't have a clue what they were doing or they were part of the cover-up to set the stage to walk lockstep with the official police narrative. And so that's the thing that let me down. Um, because they have very, I guess, high standards, so to say, or a big high following here in the Twin Cities, um, three of the big channels here, the network news, all have very good investigative groups that, that do this kind of thing. And so when this came out, I was, I was looking forward to that because I, I enjoy watching them myself. But boy, this was, this was, it, it was just, it seemed off. Something was not right about it. But they were very good to come off as very sincere, very, let's, let's, you know, let's break down this, this case and let's get to the, to the root of it. And, um, you know, during, during this time, too, I had a couple of, of uh, voicemails left from Tom Lydon on my phone saying, we want to interview you. We want to get some of your thoughts on some of this uh, to see how it all goes. And I'm glad that I refused and declined because it came off once again as a hit piece, that we were the crazy conspiracy theorists. And it would have come off as a, um, you know, throwing us under the bus for questioning it because it came off as very much a uh, very, you know, official narrative, police were right, all the research has been done, every stone has been overturned, nothing is left to miss, is how it came off. Yeah, and you know, for for me, this was my first introduction into who Tom Lydon was, and just watching that, you know, if that's who he is, and if that's the extent of what he does in his quote-unquote investigation, it's not impressive, and I would never watch anything he had to, he would ever do again. Whether he would do a great job on the next piece, the fact that he, um, for me, this is my opinion and how I see him, how he just kind of let ethics and truth kind of go out the window, and you know we've all kind of figured out by now that sometimes what we search for doesn't exactly always make us really happy, and but we still present it. It's, it's what it is, 
but it seems like Tom Leiden completely forgot that aspect. You know, I remember the days when um, I was growing up. I remember journalists in the 60s and early 70s. I mean, when they went and dug out a piece and they investigated something, they didn't care who was involved. They would get to the bottom of it. And nowadays it's like you your opinion goes toward the most popular person and not the truth. And that's kind of how I see how Tom handled this. It went toward the popular view and not the truth of the matter. Continuing on, authorities who entered the 1051 Ramsdale Drive on January 17, 2015, did not notice a bullet hole in the living room ceiling during their, quote, thorough investigation. Within hours of finding the bodies, and after, quote, assessing the crime scene, Detective Jim Gummert assumed David Crowley was guilty, yet he too missed the bullet hole in the living room ceiling. In fact, Detective Gummert could not remember the date when he saw the bullet hole. Is that truly a thorough investigation? Yeah, I thought that was one of the most frustrating answers of the 21 questions that we asked Jim Gummert, that you can't remember the date when you saw the bullet hole. Um, I believe the question was, you know, did you see the bullet hole and when? And the answer, of course, he said, yes, I saw it, which we all saw it. <laughs> I mean, we've all seen the hole, but you don't remember when? I mean, that that's frustrating. That's a very frustrating thing. So I wanted to make sure to have that in here. And that's, and Greg, that's a very good point too, because like you said, the chief investigator here would remember uh, things that they saw that were noteworthy, especially something of this magnitude. And so he would have, the answer would have been January 17th. They saw the bullet hole. Well, if it wasn't then, the only other time that they were there to see the bullet hole was February 18th. So it would have only been those two days would have been the answer. By him answering, I don't know, or I don't remember, gives us all the answers we need to know because he doesn't know because he can't say the right answer. He can't say the truth. Yep. The truth is that he didn't see it till February 18th. Well, if he saw it February 18th, that's a, that's a month later, and it was not a thorough investigation. So his only option to craft his answer would, would be to say, I don't, I don't know or I don't remember. And that's exactly what, what he did. That, that's, that is telling us all we need to know by that answer. A triple homicide on your watch, you would know the dates that you would have seen things. And so um, that's a very, I'm glad you put that in the book, Greg. That's a huge red flag. Continuing on, this case needs to be reopened based solely on the conclusion provided by the Apple Valley Police Department and their lack of evidence to prove their theory. Their theory alleges that David Crowley, quote, snapped and killed his wife and daughter. Then David allegedly killed himself after leaving three messages in three separate areas of the house. The Apple Valley Police Chief believes David was the one who wrote, quote, Allahu Akbar at the top of the living room wall after killing his wife and daughter. Where is the evidence to support that belief? 
we're talking about uh, Jim Gummert first, and he's the lead detective, um, or the sergeant. And this next paragraph talks about the police chief, which is Wright Seigel. Uh, so they are two different people. Now, the answers are very much similar, but it jumps over to the police chief in this following um, paragraph. Go ahead, Catherine. Okay, it was right there where it says, um, the very last sentence of that paragraph, it says, then David allegedly killed himself after leaving three messages in three separate areas of the house. How often have they ever seen that happen? I mean, really? What person who's gonna go around and commit suicide after they've committed double homicide is gonna go to three separate rooms on three separate devices on three separate pieces of paper? That none of that makes sense. Again, just like the bullet hole, this didn't even strike them as odd and not of that type of behavior or what they should expect to see. Like they just glossed over it. And this this ties in very well um, with their allegation that David had all this extra time in the house. The killings took place. And then he had all this time to carry out these other these other things, and so that's that's how they're tying this together by saying that he had time to go to all these different rooms. He had time to write on the walls. He had time to to uh, walk around barefoot in the blood. He had time to write on the computer. He had time to to put together this song list called Ascent on his computer to play. And so all these things that they're saying are tying it all back together. That. He was in the house for an extended period of time after the killings took place, and and so I think that's why they're they're allowing themselves to believe all this because they thought that there was all this extra time. Correct. And then you know, I, then I would ask them, <laughs> you know, let's let's compare cases, and I know they have really nothing to do with each other, but in this regard, compare this with the. Uh, um, uh, JonBenet Ramsey case and that supposed ransom note. Now supposedly someone stayed in that house and wrote what a three-page one but see now their supposed person took the time to write it all in one. Every suicide note is written on one source. Now they're trying to say oh well David oh so what he decides to go to the office now okay I'm gonna go downstairs and sit in the office and I'll just write open the rise now and then I'll just dot something here and then I'll go up here on the computer and only leave two quote-unquote footprints right from the computer and then I'll say I've loved you all oh wait a second you know okay wait that's not enough so now I think I'll write on the wall they don't seem to understand that that I don't care how much time someone stays if they're gonna focus on a quote-unquote suicide note it will be in one place they're gonna jot it all down at one time not pick and choose and go here and go there. But again, I, I mean, it's it's beyond my comprehension as to how they're going that stretch and using that as their excuse. Yeah, I mean, you, you would almost think they would be looking for, um, look, you're looking at three different writings here, you know, um, how do we know who, who did this? And, uh, yeah, I think that's the most simplest thing, as, as Catherine just articulated it so so well. Who, who does that? When have you ever heard of a case that does that? I've heard of cases where there were two written notes. They're usually signed. 
Yep. Here you have three things. We don't know who did what. And there, it's three different types. One is in blood. One is in digital form. One is in writing. None of them are really suicide notes. And right. so it, it's just, it's crazy. Their whole, I mean, how do they not think that this is weird? And uh, how does that not show evidence that maybe this was a homicide? triple homicide not a double suicide murder How, what does that have to do with a double suicide murder it's really odd yeah and so why would anyone um well a, a person who's going to be committing suicide after committing this type of an atrocious crime why would they not write their entire thoughts again in one place why are the thoughts separate you have the all who off bar on the wall and then in another room, in another section of the house, you have submit to all and out, which doesn't even make sense. And then in the area where they're all at, there's a note that says, I have loved you all with all of my heart. Really? <laughs> I mean, right there, I, I don't know. It's, it's frustrating. The police really don't even know who did what. I mean, Possibly David did the one, the summit to Allah now, but there's no proof when that was written. They're just assuming. They can't date ink. So, I mean, it's all they know for certain is that he flipped through the note pages in that notebook because it's, uh, I think it, like a partial fingerprint is there. That's the only fingerprint that they found in the whole entire crime scene. But they don't find fingerprints or DNA on the blood wall. And they can't prove who typed on the computer and the laptop thing uh, in the kitchen. So, I mean, they make a lot of assumptions. And there's no proof that anything was done under duress. Correct. So... And, and of course, Tom Lydon doesn't address any of this. Well, he doesn't have the integrity to. And that's what frustrates me the most about his 20-minute special was that he embellished on the evidence. When he talks about footprints, bloody footprints throughout the house, there were two and a half bloody footprints, and they were in a little clump. Was that over by the island? Yes. So it's not through the house, but he led his audience to believe that. And, you know, it's just, if you have integrity, why are you going to embellish? Agreed. And then I think he was talking about fingerprints being on the, the weapon, too, and... Uh, they never, they never said whose fingerprints those actually were. So it's just frustrating because you look at your news anchors, or you used to look at your news anchors as the people who are telling you the truth. That's why you turn them on. But nowadays, it's just like you have to do your own research. You cannot depend on these people to spoon feed you anymore that's this is the world that we live in and you know out of these circumstances come people like us 
because Tom Lydon couldn't, isn't asking these questions here. I mean, look at how many question marks are just in these few paragraphs here. These are all questions that Tom Lydon should have asked, and that any real news investigator would ask. And um, that's another reason why it's very important to keep this case going is because the more that, that we do, the more people that take the time to really look into it do start asking these same questions. It's just natural. Yeah, I think the, the, the last thing is the questions that should have been asked were the hard questions. Like Catherine mentioned, you get, a, you get the blood writing on the wall, which appears to be written by a left-handed person, and it's using block-style uppercase letters. Then we see a note in the office written by a right-handed person in pen that's lowercase um, cursive, essentially, flowing letters. And then you get a text written on the computer back in all capitals once again, telling you, I have loved everyone with all my heart. And so right there should have been ample opportunity for an investigative journalist to say, well, this doesn't really, there's, there's no consistency here. Um, two things are uppercase, one is lower, one is written by a right-handed person, one's by a left-handed, and one is typed. All three are different. Yep. So wh where do you, you know, where do you, those are the hard-hitting, tough questions uh, that we believe were never, were never asked. And I think that all those are fair questions as well. But after a year, you could have at least had the answers. I think that's what we're expecting is the handwriting analysis, the blood analysis, the typing analysis, the laptop, who wrote, who, you know, and none of that stuff came back with there was no fingerprints on anything, which really seemed to be more shocking than anything else, the lack of fingerprints. Because if David no, had done that, his prints would have been everywhere, but they couldn't find them. His DNA would have been everywhere. Exactly. When did we get the DNA evidence? Was it what, was it in 2017 or do you guys remember? I think so. I think it was. I mean, so at this point, was it 2017? I, I believe it was after all of the Tom Wyden report and after the sloppy mystery came out, if I remember correctly. I could could be wrong on that, but so I don't even think at this point. I mean, and, and they they've seen all of it, and we know that they have it for whatever reason. There was. People that have like some VIP roll out the freaking red carpet service to get all the documents, to get the photos, and then taunt us with them. And then we, we get them, and you can clearly see um, none of their stories make sense. I think it would have come out during the 400, one of the two 480 page reports that came out uh, with the DNA that came out at that point. Oh, the documentary okay. came out in 20, the end of 2017, I believe. Yes, okay. early 2018 is when they were posted to the group. So. Right, that's when it went to Netflix, I think. Yeah, it was, the, Deanna's right, the, the documentary did come out sometime in 2017 because that's when I joined you guys. It was after I saw that and I was like, oh no, this is not right. And so I, I sought you guys out. Yeah, and I. Yeah, it was the end of end of 2017 is when it first appeared, or Christmas I think, on A and E channel network A and E, and then it converted over to uh, Netflix after that. But uh, yeah, um, continuing on, within 48 hours of finding the bodies, did police? Tr
truly believed David was guilty. There was no other suspects. The public was not in any danger. What evidence led them to rule out foul play so early into their investigation? What evidence led them to dismiss alternative conclusions? Unless this case is reopened, we may never get the answers to those questions since the Apple Valley Police Department is no longer discussing the case. That is, that is huge. Mm -hmm. I think we all can assume that, you know, within 48 hours that did it appear that David did it? Yes. Did it appear that he was guilty? Do they, did they believe he was? They probably did. But now we're a year later and all the I's should have been dotted. All the T's should have been crossed. All the research, all the time it took, the months and months of finding what happened is, you know, comes out and they still, none of the questions came out. Um, and then they're, well, we're not going to talk about this case anymore. Um, very uh, strange. This goes back to when, you know, I I took this um, case to um, different uh, homicide uh, detectives, not only in the U.S., but in different countries across the world through through connections that people set me up with. And, I mean, most of us, when we look at, at that crime scene, right away we're like, okay, there's something not right here. And even they were like, right away, I mean, without hesitation, they're like, this triple homicide. And the only people who can't seem to figure that out is the Apple Valley Police Department. And they couldn't figure that out within 48 hours. And so yeah, I, I, I agree with you. What, what um, Greg posted in that, that paragraph is, is just, it's huge. It's heavy. And it's, why, why, you know? I think what we get here next is Tom Lydon now becoming the mouthpiece for the Apple Valley Police Department in this investigative report because supposedly as a non-biased group or person or entity, this is supposed to um, you know, really make the public believe, well, I guess this is right because now we have investigative journalists saying the same thing. But this is gets, gets to be too much. Continuing on, it says, Tom Lydon began his investigative segment declaring, quote, it's important at this point to really get all the facts out on the table. I think that's the most important thing here, end quote. Mr. Lydon, if you really want to get all the facts on the table, please consider researching the numerous facts you forgot to mention. Or the numerous facts that he embellished on. And that's, that's a very interesting piece here because um, boy he he focuses on the facts and it's interesting because at this point the Justice for David Crowley Facebook page was really focusing on the facts and and ensuring and making sure that members posting on the page were not coming up with theories, were not coming up with their opinions, were not coming up with things that they thought but at this point Greg we were really focused on make sure you speak facts only not about what David was on, uh, you know, marijuana. They had a troubling marriage. Uh, uh, there was an affair going on. You know, you know, who, all these things that kept coming up over and over and over. 
that uh, they were on hallucinogens, uh, they were taking drugs, they were going financially broke. These were things that kept coming up over and over in the months, and we had to just keep reminding folks making posts to say, talk facts only. These things may have happened, but none of these things led to the killing. It didn't have anything to do with to the to the murders themselves. And so it's funny that Tom Lydon starts off by saying, you gotta really focus on the facts. And so they were monitoring our page, obviously, when they came up with this big statement to say, really, we don't want any conspiracy theories out there. And that's what we've been saying the whole entire time. Very interesting. Now, continuing on, it says, Chief John Reitzeigel described the Crowley family as, quote, the ideal family, seemingly, before stating he believed, quote, something went terribly wrong, end quote, inside the Crowley house. Without providing any substantial evidence as to why, Chief Reitzeigel then claimed that David Crowley snapped. It looks like David snapped, Reitzeigel told Tom Lydon, and took the lives of his wife and daughter and ultimately himself. I mean, this, this, is, this gets to be just over the top, I think, uh, these statements. Um, thoughts on that? Oh, I absolutely agree. From a psychological standpoint, the, the theory of people just snapping has been disproven over and over and over again, um, especially with um, people with a history like David, you know, um, and Kamel. And we are by no means saying that they are perfect people. I mean, nobody's perfect, but David never showed any signs of being psychologically damaged and normal people don't snap. And I really wish that term had never ever come into the public arena because now it's used for the most ridiculous things, you know. They, they have nothing to back it up, so let's fall on, uh, he snapped. Yeah, that's it, he snapped. Really? It's insane. Well, it sounds, sounds like sounds like slander. Yes. To me, if yeah. I was David's family, I'd, I'd sue them for slander or something. Like, what are you guys talking about, snaps? How? And Leiden never follows up on it. He just sits there, like, crying about it. Oh, oh I feel so bad. The guy doesn't care. You know, if, if 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 he cared, push the the subject. You have the police chief right here. You have what a lot of us have been wanting to do: get the police chief, sit them down in a room, and ask them questions. It's crazy the questions that Tom Lydon does not ask. Yep. It's interesting when you watch this segment to the face of the police chief. How red it is. He's giving these statements. Uh, he looks like the most uncomfortable person in the room answering these statements. Um, uh, That's he looked, true. I just watched it he's like two weeks ago. He not seem comfortable at all, and <laughs> it's evident that he is not, not a very good liar. He does not. He he doesn't lie well, and he's trying to to pass it off. But when you watch it, it's a it's a dead it's a dead giveaway. I'd like to say uh, he looked to me like a, uh, the face that he had looked to me like a, a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. Uh, he, he didn't seem comfortable at all. Mm-mm. 
feels That's extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> a long-tailed cat in a full <laughs> rocking chair. Okay. I'm not Chief, touching that one. Chief Wright also believed a great deal of the Grey Steve movie was the reason why David killed his wife, child, and himself. From all accounts, he says, quote, the police chief told Tom Lydon he was consumed with producing this film, and it was a dark topic. Here you're talking about conspiracy theories and potentially the fall of society. And if you're focusing on that day in and day out, and these are materials you're working with, and you're filming exclusively on that topic, that can take you to a very bad place, end quote. Um, this is this is really um, once again over the top. Uh, any comments on that one? Yeah, so I would like There's to ask been... you, so does that mean that every filmmaker that has made Apocalypse Now, all of these horror movies, all of these other things, are they all snapping too now? Because they're in, they had to do the same very same thing David had to do day in and day out. They're all now in a dark place, killing themselves. Really? Sorry, Sophia, go ahead. No, I was going to make the same exact point. It's like they all had to research their scripts and everything to put into the movies, and none of them snapped. None of them killed their families and wrote three different types of suicide notes and everything. So it's just a bunch of BS. Yep. Yeah, there's no, there's no, no precedent for it. Go ahead. It, it ties in nicely. The other thing they're trying to do here with these statements like this is to throw the Grey State script under the bus and to throw conspiracy theorists as a whole under the bus. When the things mm -hmm. David was writing and talking about back then are basically all coming true right now in today's world, it is very interesting um, how all these things they talked about are very much what we're seeing here. And David Crowley was actually ahead of his time what was what was coming up but this was this was used i think as a as a stunt to throw everyone under the under the bus uh the, the project david the family what he was doing what he was talking about and conspiracy theorists as a whole so um this i don't think came up with right cycle just came up with this but i think this was part of the script that was handed uh, to him as far as bullet points that he needed to say on camera now the question is, who would have handed this kind of information to the chief? Who would have been forwarding this information to the chief to say, look, make sure you stress these following points? And that's what I'm getting at here when I when I talk about uh, Operation uh, Mockingbird and propaganda and how prevalent it is here in America with the news and with uh, uh, you know, police departments like this. They're trying to push a narrative. And that's that's a question. None of this was was stuff that he would have uh, mentioned or talked about or phrases he would have said if you asked him directly. But he's he's painting a picture here and using bullet points to uh, give the give the viewers that this was a crazy guy that that indeed did snap. And this too just goes to to prove this statement right here by the chief just goes to prove that they did not they themselves did not investigate why because the film Gray State ended up being nothing about conspiracy that was the direction that 
Danny August Mason was hoping it would go because Danny August Mason was really into conspiracies and he presented all this stuff to David at first and that's kind of where the script was being written but David said no I don't even want to do this I want to take this in a whole different direction he rewrote the entire thing based it on what he saw coming down the pipe from you know coming down what's going to be happening in America and around the world, and he created an entirely different script. It wasn't based on conspiracies. It was based on things that were happening in the government that were not being put out or the general public wasn't seeing. So all of this, you know, dark stuff, this conspiracy stuff, is all another lie. It's another narrative. Adding, well, adding to their narrative, like you were saying, Dan, and who did that and why. Correct. And the script, you know, the script wasn't out at this time. So I think what they're talking about when they're talking about Gray State and the project was really, I'm guessing that two and a half minute trailer is what they were referring to. Um, correct? When they when they talked about the Gray State project, that's all they really had. Yeah, but um, even in the trailer, there's no conspiracy. That was all stuff that if you follow what, like the RFID chips and the, you know, everybody being under, you know, I mean, the book 1984, I mean, there are a lot of different books and scripts that are written with, it, with that same type of genre and, and way of going. And um, as far as they are, I mean, that has been in the works forever. But David had gone and done research on these different topics and then was putting them in and kind of putting pieces together. And again, that just tells me they didn't research or did they? And was was it calling the conspiracy trying to deflect like you were saying did someone higher up did they want this deflection done so the the focus would be off of what was coming because look we're facing this now um um versus you know what in other words to make him look like some nut job that quote unquote snapped versus uh-oh someone who sees it and he's putting pieces together correct uh, who would who would be higher? Who would be higher than the uh, chief? I mean, because you bring up a really good question, and I'm racking my brain trying to think. Man, this guy is like the highest law enforcement officer, right? That's the the chief. So, who is? If it came from somebody higher, it's like there's really not a lot of options. Well, that's now maybe. I think that's a great point because that's where we're after with with all of this in this book how many layers are up there that we don't know about now if he's the chief and obviously they're uh, they're being manhandled by someone though someone's the pu puppet master for all this uh jim gummert i don't think believes david crowley did this john wright's cycle i don't think did it but they've got to push this narrative um and so the question is who's feeding it who's funneling it who above them and so when you get to the state of Minnesota, um, the next layer up, you know, the attorney general in the state of Minnesota, which was, I believe it was Keith, maybe Ellison at the time, um, that's already, that, that position is a corrupt position already. Back when this crime happened, uh, run by and operated by deep state, Minnesota is a very deep state once again, and the people here in the state don't realize that. They think that other states are where this corruption happens. Not here, not in the Midwest. That yeah. doesn't happen here. I've talked to people firsthand that have told me that, including law enforcement officials. These things don't 
happen here? Well, Keith Ellison, member uh, himself from Mr. Muslim Brotherhood himself, has gotten to his position for certain reasons. And so that is not a good individual in the highest law enforcement position in the state. Now, those in the federal government are running those in the state government. And so we already know um, the federal government and the arms uh, within are corrupt and run by deep state. I mean, this, this coup in America did not take place recently. This has been decades. And so this is, you know, when Ellison leaves office, guess who takes over for him? It's Ilhan Omar. So this is how deep-rooted the state of Minnesota is with corruption in the state. So uh, right cycle, I think, was manhandled by someone who got a talking to as far as how to, how to roll this thing out and how to portray it. He didn't have a clue, obviously, what was going on because I think all this was over all their heads. Um, these are pawns. And when you look at the much bigger picture, you realize very quickly that John Whitecycle is not the leader, the top guy here in Apple Valley for the state, but he's merely a pawn being pushed around. And so, um, you know, he, he, he did what he was told or instructed to do. The question is, who does it come down from? Who hands it down? Is it CIA? Is it FBI? Is it State Department? Uh, we know all three of those organizations are corrupt from what we've seen here in the last couple of years alone. The Department of Justice is corrupt. So so who's really calling the shots and who was told to make the story go away? That That's the question. And that, that'd be the same question with Tom Lydon. Who was handing Tom Lydon the list of questions to ask for this interview? These aren't Tom Lydon's questions that he came up with, obviously. Um, he can't. He can't be that much of an imbecile. So the question is, who handed him these softball questions? Someone higher up, obviously. And so in the media, we've got the chain of command. In the government, we have the chain of command. And all the people that we've discussed here so far today on the show are all low-level feeders, uh, low-level people that the general public thinks are very high-level. Tom Lydon, very highly respected. No, he's he is not anything close to that. John Wrightcycle, uh, a high person, a high up, the police chief. No, uh, you know, he's, you're, still, you're still a water boy for someone higher above you that the public doesn't know about. And I think that's the most important thing to talk about in a case like this, uh, whereas it's not as conspiracy theories, it's who's really making cover-ups like this succeed? How are cover-ups like this in the police department handled? How are they so done so well? We're six years into this, and it's been very successful to cover up. But the question is, how? How can it be that successful? We already know and have proven that David didn't do this. The question then is, why are we keep getting the backlash from the people in the media and law enforcement saying that David did do it? That, that's, I think, the question that we're all learning by being in this uh, justice group and following cases like this is how are things like this pulled off? How are they successfully pulled off? A cover-up of this magnitude. So that's, this, is, this is what we're getting on this, uh, on this good chapter. Uh, Greg's got a very good chapter here. Anything more on that? Tom, Tom Lydon goes on to say, quote, judging by the mail piling up and a paper in the home, 
the murder slash suicide took place the day after Christmas. David shooting Kamel twice in the head, Rania once, before shooting himself. Between their bodies, a Quran, with pages torn out, opened to a traditional forgiveness prayer, end quote. This, this is almost laughable. Who wants to start with the comments on this one? Catherine, oh, please. <laughs> okay, go ahead, Sophia, because I don't know if I'll shut up. No, 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 I want you to do it. Oh, You're the oh. one who did the research on this. <laughs> yes, you know, and, and I just, I don't know if you've seen the recent video I did, Dan, but, I, you know, all this time, I never looked at this um, Quran, right? I never even opened it and looked at it. I didn't even look to read it, what it, the page it was on, on the floor, until just one day I, I read that report. Somebody brought it to the attention, so I pull up the um you know, the, the supplemental report, and I'm reading it, where Sidra's stating, oh, yes, you know, this is just a forgiveness prayer. And I'm like, well, let me go and read this, because I've had other um, is, uh, people of the Muslim faith contact me and say, no, no, it's not. It, that's not it. But I never pushed it forward, because I'm like, well, okay, I I don't read the language. So then I order a Quran, and I start reading it. And I'm like, hold on a second. Any Nimrod, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, any Nimrod, who reads that page? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm this. This. I'm. I'm really hacked at this right now. Can clearly see this is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You have on the page on the crown the floor, which wasn't between them, by the way. It was to David's left, and Kamel was to his right. So it's on David's left hand side by his aunt. Anyway, it, you know. So in this open crown. To the right of this, you have it written in Arabic. To the left, it's written in English. And down below is someone who's discussing and telling what these these things mean. And so I'm like going, okay, why didn't they read this? This is clearly a story that's even in our own Bibles. That's in their Quran. What? How does Sodom and Gomorrah ever translate into a forgiveness prayer? So A, Sidra's freaking lying out her backside. B, the police are too damn stupid to read it. And C, Tom Mike doesn't have the freaking wherewithal to open up the damn book and read it himself. And this is somebody who's calling himself an investigative reporter? Okay, I told you that. I, I, this, this irks me because this, is, this shows a lack of integrity. This shows a lack of professionalism. And this shows proof of narrative on their part. I'm sorry, I'm done with my rant now. I have nothing to add. <laughs> oh, this really gets in my craw. I mean, and and to know that Sidra flat out lied. I mean, it's a blatant flat out lie. There's nothing else you can call it. It's not a misunderstanding. It's not she didn't understand. She looked at that photograph of that Quran open and told the police it's a traditional forgiveness prayer said over the dead. I'm sorry I'm mimicking her, but I, someone who lies, they deserve to be mimicked because that's ridiculous. Again, I said, okay, I'm done. I have to shut up because I'm afraid I'll rip her a new one and that's not the purpose of this chapter. No, we'll definitely get there. There's a chapter on this, <laughs> so I'm sure we'll get there eventually. What, what do you think the What do you think the purpose of uh, trying to convince people that the forgiveness prayer was involved? Uh, to make it look like that? David what? was saying he was sorry for killing them. Oh, please forgive me for killing my family. That's how it comes across to me. 
but it's it's all but right. He's a, but he's a but he's a Christian, exactly. right? So yeah, exactly. Why would he sense. do a, a Muslim prayer? And how would he know about a Muslim prayer? He never really got into that religion, not as far as we can see. So what was the purpose of that? Well, I think the interesting thing to to point out is is once again we need to take a take a step back to look at the big picture and then take another step back to take a the much larger picture. Catherine, you mentioned the Sodom and Gomorrah. So we're getting into the the sex and the and the uh, inappropriate um sex. And what I call by that is the non-heterosexual sex. Uh-huh. Now, why did I get Tom Lydon to do this story? Tom oh. Lydon is not a straight man. Ooh, you're right. He is. You're you're correct. No one in this case is a straight person for the most part except David and Kamel. Right. So there's all this connections with with homosexuality in this whole case including the investigation including the book. It's right in our face is is what's being done here. So they're really going after uh David but they're getting teamed up and and gang you know getting piled up on uh, David's getting piled up on by this whole same type of a crowd if, if you will um they're, they're all ones trying to do the bidding to uh to snuff this man out and it all comes in a sexual nature so why that's the question why of all the investigative journalists in the Twin Cities was Tom Lyne selected for this and why does he go along with the narrative in particular this that David did it so we you know you know that 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 book open to Sodom and Gomorrah was not by accident either so once again it comes back to all these little the symbolism and all these things done on purpose that we're not told about the average person is not going to look up and say I'm going to look up this forgiveness prayer and and see what it really means the general public doesn't do that they they listen and believe what they're told by the media So we get the answer from Catherine who decides to as a critical thinker go out order the book get it and start reading through this and investigate. Well, the propaganda in this in this nation is all built around the fact that people generally don't do that. That's why they're able to get away with telling these tall tales in all these various cases. So Catherine, thank you for doing that because that now we're getting much closer to the to the bigger picture, I think. Yeah, and and I, you know, I kicked myself too and and I even stated in the video, you know, I just I did and I'm just as guilty. I took them at their word. I took Sidra at her word because I was like, why would I doubt what she had to say until, you know, I got it and just started reading it. And then all of a sudden, I'm telling you, I'm like, well, wait a second. We know this story. This is in Genesis in our Bible. And and then wait a second. This is about destroying people who are wicked it this is bible talking i'm just quoting scripture here so people don't go off on me on this but in both the quran and the bible it talks about destroying the homosexual behavior in communities of both Sodom and Gomorrah so but why you're right i didn't even stop to think about why would that have been and it was it was opened on purpose and left there why would that be left on their floor when they're the only two straight people amongst all their friends It's all staged. 
Uh, continuing with the next section, it says, Chief Reitzigel told Tom Lydon that David Crowley used Comel's blood to write Allahu Akbar at the top of the living room wall, close to a clock mounted on the wall. The police chief did not specify what evidence tied David to the blood writing, and it's unclear if Tom Lydon bothered to ask that question. Asked why he believed David wrote the words in his wife's blood, the chief responded, quote, we believe that was kind of a parting shot, probably at Comel for having a Muslim past, end quote. Now this is another paragraph that's loaded with juicy details. Uh, number one, we don't know that David Crowley wrote anything on blood. We do know that it's Comel's blood that was used on that wall, but there is no fingerprints or no nothing to show that David Crowley wrote it. But that's just a given here, the way that it's questioned to Tom Lydon, that, that that's a given. Well, that's not a given. That, that should be his first question to ask, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Going on, it says, quote, this has nothing to do with Islam, end quote. Mason Hendricks told Tom Lydon separately, but everything to do with a man that lost his way and ultimately killed his wife and his daughter and then himself. Hendricks thought David was being sarcastic when he wrote Allahu Akbar in Kamel's blood. Quote, that's him possibly throwing a jab. A jab at Kamel's family? Lydon asked. Possibly. Yet this has nothing to do with Islam? David did not kill himself right away, Tom Lydon reported. He left a trail of footprints tracking Kamel's blood through the house. In the living room, his bloody fingerprint is on a laptop open to a text file with only a single sentence that says I have loved you all with all of my heart in the home office on a notepad more bloody fingerprints and now the words submit to Allah now end quote the comments there all, should I continue with the next one it's, it's, it's just all slander it's all propaganda you have it has nothing to do with Muslims, but yet everything that we're seeing here that they're talking about has to do with Muslims. You have Mason Hendricks saying that it was possibly David throwing a jab, which is pretty much what the chief is saying. I mean, Hendricks and the chief are pretty much saying the same thing. That's why I wanted to put those two quotes in there closely. Um, it's a it's a parting it's a parting shot. You know, um, is what the chief says, and Hendricks. Adds, it, it, he's, you know, it's it, it's possibly him throwing a a jab. Um, it's everything that you just read there that they said is not true. Just about everything is not true, or it's pure speculation. It's propaganda. It is meant for the weak-minded people. It is really meant for people who want to believe David Crowley is guilty for them to just write this case off and to move on to some other case. How about the phrase, he left a trail of footprints, plural, a trail through the house. Any comment, Catherine? Um, That's I a Hendricks really, quote, too, by the way. Go ahead. I would really like to, I, I have a lot to say about because you know I don't believe they're footprints to begin with, but I would really like to have, if it's okay, Sophia, because this is what Sophia was talking about earlier. Are you there, Sophia? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Okay. Go for it, girl. I just 
we know that this isn't true. There was only like two and a half uh, footprint type uh, imprints on the wooden floor over by the um, island. And it's not throughout the house like they were saying. This is just pure embellishment and slander. They're making it look like David was just wandering through the house with blood on his feet. Which, by the way, if you've ever tried to walk with blood on your feet or wet paint on your feet, it's almost impossible. You're slipping, you're sliding, uh, you lose your balance very easily, and it's, it's just not easy to do. So, <laughs> this is just all more BS. Yeah, and and having them say that they were throughout the house when all these pretend finger kindergarten paint jobs are done is like straight in front of the computer, nothing leading up to, nothing going away, not even when they mm -hmm. sprayed the floor. Did it bring out, when, when they used the amino black, it didn't bring out any prints anywhere else except for right there. Oh, really? So where did that blood come from? How did it get there? So jump over there, walk on his heels? I mean, it's just ludicrous. And and it only looks like it's one foot. It only, I think it's yes. I think it looks like like the right foot, but it's it's not like it's not even two feet. Even right. if you believe that it's feet, it's just one foot. No, no, not buying it. Um, and then you know it, it, this is all slender. His bloody fingerprint is on the the laptop. That, that's not true. There are somebody's bloody. There are, are fingerprints. Somebody's bloody fingerprints are on there. They don't. They can't tie that to to David. They should know that by now. Tom Lydon should know that by now. He should be calling them on this stuff. But yet he is just spouting what they tell him, which is what a lot of people um, who have faded off in this case. That's what they did. It's just you know. Do you want to be to believe that David Crowley is guilty? If you do, then don't waste any more time. Just listen to whatever Tom Lydon says and. Watch the sloppy mentory, and that's it, you know. But real people are not falling for that. And if you have fallen for that, it's time to take a second look. Go back and actually look at what they're saying and compare that to what the documents say. I know it takes time. We try to make it as easy for you as possible to do it yourself. It's not about us shaming you because you are wrong. It's just about finding what the truth is here. That's it. And he also goes, I think the, the other thing is the photos, there's 460, I think, photos uh, of every square inch of that house, essentially. And one can see for yourself that there's no bloody footprints anywhere except for those two, whatever they are, by the kitchen island. But there's no tracks through the house. There's no blood. There's no bloody footprints throughout the house. There isn't any bloody footprints anywhere. Um, and then the other thing is because David did, was not wearing socks and shoes, he was barefoot. They attributed the blood to his feet, but his feet were never tested, nor confirmed that blood were ever on his feet, ever. That's a major, major point, major question. If I was Tom Lydon, yes. to ask if there was footprints all through the house, did the tests on David's feet conclude that Kamel's blood was all over David's feet, both of them? Well, the question was never asked. That, to me, would be a fair question. 
And in the autopsy, the coroner even made a comment about David's toenails being clean and neat. If he had been walking through the house in blood, they def- the blood definitely would have been underneath his toenails and in the cuticle area. And there's no mention of that at all. Um, any final words here? And we'll go ahead and shut this episode down. Um, nothing more for me. Well, I was just kind of, um, Sophia or Catherine, any final words? No, none for me. No. I would just hope that every everybody looks at these documents, looks at what um, these people are saying. Come to your own conclusion. Is this case really closed? Interested in the paranormal? Murder mysteries? Cryptocurrency and thought provoking interviews? Then check out Crypt Rick's I've Been Thinking on YouTube or every Monday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Studio A at Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com. Welcome to the Crypt. As always, we are so appreciative of everybody who has taken the time to listen to this podcast. You are listening to the Gray Stage podcast. We've been going over my book, The Gray Stage. But today I want to talk a little bit about another book by Stephen Sanziri. Now that name, you may know that name because Stephen has been a frequent uh, guest and a contributor, not only on this podcast, but on another podcast that I work on called What is Truth. So Um, We've done a lot of stories over there. We've got one coming up, and we're going to talk about his time running a gold gym, what it was like being a former police officer, bounty hunting, etc., etc., all that good stuff. But read this book now, Ultimate Prey, Ultimate Prey by Stephen Sanzeri, the true story behind the Yosemite Sightseer murders. I'm telling you, I've read this book now four or five times. This needs to be a movie. I know there's some big things happening with this project, but um, ultimately, I want to see a movie. But read the book. The book is awesome. It reads like a feature film. The suspense, the anger, the drama, the sadness, the stress, uh, all of that... And then all of Stephen's great work that he does in this book. Um, It really takes me through those motions and, um, you know, really kind of just grabs me in in ways that a lot of books don't. But it keeps me on edge. I need to know what is going to happen next. What is he going to find? He's chasing these these people, certain people like uh, Paul Candler and Um, some of these other people lots of interesting characters now um, if you know about the Yosemite sightseer murder uh, you may have a different take on that but if if you want to learn more about that case and get a different view maybe go a little bit deeper this is the book to do it 
Ultimate Prey. Ultimate Prey by Stephen Sanziri. You can find it everywhere. Uh, just Google it, look it up. You can get it right now for under $11 on Amazon. Uh, I know there's a lot of other books on this case, but this one is completely different. Okay, this one really goes through. And this is from somebody who was, who was there, who was right in the thick of it without even knowing it for years. So it's pretty interesting, Stephen Sanziri's story. So I hope you do check out that book. Stay tuned because a lot more is going to be happening on that. And I'm going to have Stephen on. We're going to talk about this book, kind of do a... Um, just go through it. Go through the whole book. I have a lot of questions about it and about his story and about what he was doing, um, how he got involved in this case without even really, really knowing it and what he found um, and some updates on the book, on the content of the book since then. All right. Thank you for listening here. Back to the show. A simple truth. It really is this simple. Either you believe David Crowley is innocent or you believe he is guilty. If you believe David Crowley is guilty, you are wrong. If you believe David Crowley is innocent, you are right. It really is that simple. A United States Army veteran is dead. His wife and his five-year-old daughter are dead. A thorough investigation would only conclude with authorities admitting they lacked evidence to support their accusations. If authorities were to admit the case remains unsolved, they would also have to admit that the public may still be in danger. I am not able to solve this case. My interest is in forcing authorities to admit David Crowley is innocent. The reason they refuse to talk about this case is not because they are confident of David's guilt. They lack confidence in their allegations. Their department wishes to move on, but they are only lying to themselves. They must know the simple truth, and they need to publicly admit this. Their credibility depends on it now. The unspoken truth is that David is innocent until proven guilty. Why are authorities running from the simple truth? How long do they think they can run for? You cannot run from God. You cannot run from your nightmares, and you cannot run from the facts. Why would anyone want to? What could possibly motivate someone to try? If you cannot prove David Crowley guilty, then he remains innocent. It's as simple as that. So the resistance we face is disgusting. If David was guilty, the evidence would be right in our faces. If David was guilty, resistance to our questions would not exist. If David was guilty, facts would be evident. There are no facts to prove David guilty. There are only facts which prove David innocent. Hence the resistance to getting justice for David Crowley and family. Who cares? Do the people who closed this case and decided to not speak about it ever again really care? Do the friends who accused David Crowley of being guilty days after his body was found really care? Perhaps they only care about spreading the accusations of David's guilt instead of researching the facts of this case. They don't seem to care about the facts which prove David innocent. Truth is a simple thing. Justice does not die. Facts prove David is innocent.